We welcome back Petaluma Mayor David Glass to the stage at the Phoenix Theater. Mayor Glass previously appeared on this program during the 2014 mayoral campaign, and we kept the focus off politics and on the individual. Tonight, we intend to delve into the political discussion as we explore the mayor's philosophies on governance, the political state of Petaluma, and much more. It is our great honor to welcome back to the program Petaluma Mayor David Glass. Welcome, David. We actually have on stage with Jim and Tom and David tonight. Thank you. What an honor. Great to be here. My honor. Are you feeling, and we'll just, we'll just jump right in, because Tom reads a lot uh, in the Argus and spends a lot that's of true. time discussing as he walks downtown. See, that's the funny that's, thing. Yeah. I don't read the Argus. <laughs> I, I read everything that's not about me. If my right. name's in it, I don't read it. Otherwise, I'll take I, a look at what's in there. Yeah. I, I don't blame you. I, yeah. I don't read news about us either. Much <laughs> better that way. Well, I mean, you both actually have been the subject of political cartoons in that very publication. Really? <laughs> we, got, we got no class glass sitting across. <laughs> well, gee, I, see, I wouldn't have <laughs> Yeah. On that. No, this is uh, years ago. And then Tom Gaffey uh, oh with the Phoenix. But they no, gave I, me a ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it, there's a level of, uh, boy, uh, political standstill and intransigence across the country uh, in politics. And do you feel that sense on the city level? Yes. This has been an interesting environment. Now, this is my 10th year as mayor altogether. Uh, if we go back to the first term, Uh, 2003 through 2006, those were boom times. And that's when we really did the revitalization downtown. The theater district came in, and it was a completely different atmosphere to be mayor. Today, and I really put it to the Donald Trump phenomenon, because he's managed to sell that there's a lot of stupid people in government. Uh, Locally, there's really not. I disagree with the city council members quite often on values. But to put them in a category of stupid, I could never do that. Those are some of the most intelligent people I've ever come across in my life. Um, But there there is a degrading and a devaluing of public service right now. And it's, I think, just something that's being swept all over the country. And uh, it's unfortunate, but it's in our town also. It is unfortunate. David, how many hours a week do you think uh, an average city council member or mayor puts into this job for the city? Well, I I don't keep score that way. And so I couldn't say, but I say that my computer is only um, in sleep mode. I don't ever really shut it off and log it off. And so when I wake up in the middle of the night, I'll check emails, and people are surprised. They'll get email responses from me at 3 o'clock in the morning. But it's an easy thing for me to do. Uh, I love doing what I'm doing. I I wouldn't put my name on the ballot if I didn't. It's a passion. It's a passion. It's the most interesting thing I've ever done. You know, and I've done a few things. And so when you put this into uh, perspective of being the most interesting thing that I've ever had the opportunity to do, and I try to focus on... Uh, I went to the Sundance Conference in 2006, and it was about climate change, and Al Gore was the speaker there to 46 mayors in North America, and I was one of the 46. And Robert Redford talked about his experience of testifying before Congress on climate change, and as they were losing the issue in front of a Congress that didn't yet want to hear the message about the climate. 
And Robert Redford got frustrated telling the story, and he said, walking away, he said to one of the congressmen, how can you do this? And the answer that he got back was, because we don't lose them all. Now, I can look back on city government, and I can say the value of doing what we do in standing up, for instance, for the environment is because we don't always lose. Sometimes we get a wastewater treatment plant that's on the cutting edge, and that's what we got here in Petaluma. We do. Absolutely. How's that working? Well, it's working fine. It, uh, it was value engineered, and that was one of the challenges of it. Uh, that wastewater treatment plant was put out to bid in 2005 yeah. at a time when the original plant, the Hopper Street plant, was built in 1938, had a 50-year life expectancy and was well beyond that. The consultant had put Band-Aids on it to fix it and said, yeah. we can't fix it anymore. You need to build a new one. Absolutely. And Petaluma was starting to grow around it anyway. But there again, you have a, uh, that would seem to be a common sense thing, but you have people very upset about what it costs to put that in. And even to this day, I think Petaluma's water bills, I think, are higher than neighboring cities because of that plant. And they are high. One thing that happened there was that they did not set up a sinking fund to put money aside to build a capital improvement project that they certainly knew they were going to have to build. And so historically what happened was they were taking hookup fees and applying those to rates, suppressing them artificially low and burning the capital. So you started with a zero balance of a project that was going to be very expensive to build and the hookup fees were going to subsidize ongoing rates. Now laws have changed since those times back in the uh, 50s, early 60s and whatnot. That's no longer even legal. You couldn't do that. So a hookup fee is a hookup fee to reimburse for a capital expense, not to cover operating expenses. But absent the wastewater treatment plant that we actually did build, we would not have had water during this most dire drought that we experienced. Which is interesting because people don't think about that when they get upset. They, they think about what they don't have as opposed to what, what they did get. And, and what's interesting about your point about not wanting to read the Argus because it is so fiery sometimes uh, and, and commentary and discourse is sort of breaking down about our elected officials is you have a, a situation where if people, and from my vantage point, and I'm not in politics, uh, if people don't get what they want totally, then they're disappointed. And they channel their disappointment into... I would read as personal attacks. You know what I mean? They they want a thing. They don't get the thing totally. They're totally disappointed. And then they attack the people who didn't get them what they wanted. And and so you have this sort of uh, tinderbox sort of environment, it would seem, in government. Yeah, where and the spirit getting, of compromise seems to be disappearing in that same vein. And this this is getting to be a point of contention for a lot of people, I think. It's, it's happening on a national scale, so it's natural that it would bleed down at least somewhat to the local level. Yeah. But I can tell you also the reciprocal of that. There's almost not a day that goes by that I'm not walking through the streets of Petaluma and somebody that is a stranger to me, but they, they know me, will come up and just say thank you. Excellent. And so uh, it's not that people don't notice that you're trying to go to bat for them. Uh, and sometimes the choices that were given border between awful and unthinkably awful. But those are the choices that you have when you're going through the budget cuts. And so what I would say is the first term as mayor, 2003 to 2006, we were booming. We put $17 million into street reconstruction from the redevelopment agency. Uh, Prior to that, we had put a utility tax on the ballot in 2003. It needed uh, 50% plus one to remove a utility tax prohibition from the charter 
and it needed two-thirds vote to authorize a tax that would have fixed every street in town with a 7% increase in utility rates, and it would have done it in a 15-year period. All of the streets would have been fixed. It would have been paid for in 15 years. The streets would have been fixed in four years. Was there a, sunsh- a sunset on that? There was, 15-year tax. Oh, yeah. oh, 15. And the voters rejected it two-thirds to one. I couldn't believe it. And I'll share this with you because Joe Sanchez was the writer for the Press yeah. Democrat at the time. And he called me. And at 8 o'clock at night, you know, you're going to see the results released yeah. from the uh, county. And you're going to see the early returns. And we're thinking that we're going to be in the ballpark or something. Well, the early ter- returns were so devastating. Joe Sanchez said to me, he says, what are you going to do now, Mr. Mayor? And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know what to do in this regard because the voters are showing that they're not going to lift a finger to fix the yeah. problem. So we'll have to go back and reprioritize and we can fix the major arterial streets to the degree we're capable with redevelopment and the rest of the streets are going to deteriorate. And he put that online and it didn't take three minutes for there to be a quote back from somebody responding, dear Mr. Mayor, I'm lifting a finger. It's the middle finger. And And that's back in what year? That was back in, I think, 2003 or four when we put that measure on the ballot. Well, you know, uh, you made you had a quote a moment ago about how sometimes the option is horrible and the unthinkably awful. Um, You know, there is an Otto von Bismarck quote. Politics is the art of the possible, the attainable. And I think the hardest part of a person in your position is to craft the narrative for people and explain the story without getting bogged down in details. What you just described was a good example of, of, of here's why this thing happened. But sometimes there's nuance. One's job in your position is to create the options and the narrative, which is uh, a- able to be heard by the public um, and also hopefully um, understood. understood. Yeah. The, the challenge, too, you're nailing it, is to present realism so you don't exacerbate this disillusionment with government. And if I can take something that's very hard for people in this town to really accept is the Rainier Crosstown Connector. The financial impossibility. Let's tell people who don't know what that is. Uh, what is the Rainier Crosstown Connector? Good point. So we've yeah. got a road that would take you from Petaluma Boulevard to McDowell at uh, the point where Rainier is on the east side of town. And so that would be north of Washington. Uh, But the problem is it's not far enough north of Washington really to meet all of the project's objectives because one of the objectives is a freeway interchange. So the road itself where Rainier hooks with the freeway is too close to Washington and so it is in violation of Caltrans standards uh, for proximity of interchange. And here's your tough situation is after 30 seconds to 60 seconds of talking about this stuff, a lot of people lose interest. And I'm not saying yeah. that is a disrespectful thing. I'm just yeah. saying it's a lot of information. You know, some people just they just want the overpass. We don't it doesn't matter. I don't need to hear the all this talk. I just want it done. But the problem is it's in the details as to why this stuff isn't happening and what it takes to get it Cut done. Cut the minutia, find the money, but and build it's the all, overpass. But it's all minutia, and that's the tough thing. <laughs> yes. And it's like making it digestible minutia. That, that is the challenge. You know what? I was told, and this, they said this is a problem with liberals, with Democrats. They want to analyze things and explain the truth. And in politics, a simple <laughs> lie trumps a complicated truth. <laughs> And that was before we ever thought of Donald Trump right. spewing out all of the rhetoric that he does. 
<laughs> well, and, and that's the point. Um, I, I don't know how many people understand the placement of the Rainier uh, overpass is such that, yes, we cannot have the interchange. We're too close to Washington Street to have an on-ramp. Uh, that could be possibly safe, especially in a high traffic uh, in a high traffic density area. So this is problem number one. Uh, but the funding in itself seems almost astronomical. The funding is astronomical, and in fact, the 1994 environmental impact report that started this whole thing going, uh, it stated you would have to build half the project before you could guess what it would cost to complete it. And this is a project that, because of the complexities of it, it goes through wetlands. It had to be elevated over railroad tracks and over the river, and then they had to maintain that elevation to get a freeway overpass down onto the freeway. So the structure was going to have to maintain all of that elevation because you couldn't come down from the level of clearing the train tracks and then come back to the level to access the freeway from up above. Such a fascinating thing because, again, so many people that live in Petaluma complain about the traffic. Here is a political discussion about uh, possible solutions and possible problems we run into with the solutions. But again, it's tough to get people to sit and listen to a conversation like this. So uh, this, this is one reason why I'm thankful for someone in your position, because you have to dive into these details yeah. and try to do your best to navigate through them, to share with the public, and try to get people interested enough to either bite the bullet and vote for uh, fundraising techniques to pay for these projects, um, or, or understand that we maybe can't or do understand that we can't do it and you're in a position to be the face of telling somebody they can't get what they want based on the economic realities we sit in I think a lot of people are starting to understand that that's true <laughs> you know yeah. just from the fact that if it hasn't been done yet yeah you know what makes you think how do you like the track record of those that have promised it now I'll work toward it uh, I had an opportunity to close a deal with J.P. Morgan Chase on $11 million of funding on the last day of redevelopment. And I closed the deal. I had been a municipal securities principal. I know what they want to hear and the promises that they want made. So that funding will allow us to do an opening in the freeway when the freeway's raised, lifted, and widened. Now, what year that is, who knows? Who We're, pays for the, the, the raising, the lifting, and the widening of the freeway? Caltrans, it because be they're Caltrans. doing that portion of the project, but it's on our local nickel to create the open space, and that is about a $7.5 million engineering feat. So we'll pay for that. We'll have at least a donut hole that you'll be able to walk under, you'll be able to take a bicycle under, you'll be able to take a car somewhere if you ever get the Crosstown Connector portion. Again, progress is incremental. You know, and it, the, the, the devil is in the details. There's another quote. This, I don't, this is by Voltaire. Perfect often is the enemy of the good for people. And what that means is they want the ideal situation. And if they can't have the Rainier overpass now, then why are we paying $11 million? And oftentimes the answer is because we are not able to get perfect now, but we can get something done. So we should seize that. That's another tough thing to impart upon people, I feel. You're right, because if you walled in the community like they did in 1962 when they first put that highway in, then it would be prohibitively expensive to ever take the route underneath the freeway. It's only because they're raising, lifting, and widening the freeway that we have this opportunity. So that expenditure will make it theoretically possible to complete a portion of the project, and that's the Crosstown Connector portion. And the freeway interchange that we talked about, in order to do that because of the proximity to Washington Street that Tom was talking about, you would have to 
do an auxiliary lane uh, north and south in each direction, which would include the condemnation of existing homes in a community that has a housing crunch. And by condemning existing homes, that drives the project up many millions of dollars. But that's what would be necessary if you wanted to have the uh, freeway interchange. Would that be an eminent domain situation? Yes. Where you would have to essentially pay the people who live there to move somewhere else? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Because I think you'd find that some of the people that are actually living in the area are not in favor of, of the overpass at all. It, and so it would probably not be so they wouldn't be so willing to sell their property to the city at that point. No. So it would require eminent domain. Yeah. I mean, to, to do that, to co- get in compliance with Caltrans. So what I'll say is the good news is we we didn't put all of our eggs in one basket at Rainier. We went ahead and worked on old Redwood Highway. We were able to widen and fix that. We yeah. did the East Washington northbound on ramp. That's a major improvement yeah. there. What I fear is the achievable is actually Caulfield, but we've had indications that that would be a seven-year project from the day you started to go through all of the uh, approval processes to get it under construction. And I'm glad that you mentioned Caltrans because it's not all just in the city of Petaluma. There's so many different organizations and agencies that are involved. There's so many layers here that, uh, again, I think that just in driving through town and being frustrated by how bad traffic is, You forget, or one maybe doesn't know, how steep the slope to change is. It's a a very long process, and we're putting a lot of money right now into preparation to try to eventually get Rainier, but that comes at the expense of other things that we could be doing with traffic mitigation money. We could have a program to coordinate signal lights, but that would require getting the pavement condition up to an acceptable level because... What triggers a signal light is uh, wait. When, when you have bad pavement condition, you get artificial triggers on those computers. Uh, so you need this uh, pavement in good working condition, and then you can get a, a good uh, electronic signal coming from the pavement going up to yep. uh, change the lights. And so in line with the lighting situation, uh, I'd like to throw in uh, something we're already working on. With a simple question, road diets, do you think they're working? Do they work? And I would just like to add, um, if I ever become mayor, I think the least favorite thing of mine of that office will be uh, walking down the street and people coming up to me about the various issues with the town <laughs> and saying, hey, you know, the the light over next to 7-Eleven on Washington doesn't work. Could you do something about that? Anyway, a little levity. but No, go, but, yeah. you know, you're right because that's what happens. But yeah. that's how you find out things that are going yeah. on. Yeah. Um, as far as road diet. Let me touch on that because, um, first of all, what happened on Petaluma Boulevard, there were compromises that were made that uh, hurts the integrity of that road diet to work at maximum efficiency. Uh, We were told that we needed to eliminate four parking spaces on Petaluma Boulevard as you approached Washington Street, headed northbound on the right-hand lane. We eliminated two. Had we eliminated four, there'd be a greater lane to get into to the right. Right hand turns. And, yes. And road diet for those listening who don't know what that is, basically what, what reforming and re- and changing how many lanes we have on a particular place and all of that. And moving down from from uh, two to to one, um, is that is that making a huge difference? Uh, yes. And here's where it makes a difference. First of all, the condition of the road they were substandard in width. The, a typical lane is 11 feet. 
each of the lanes were 10 feet in width. What that led to is a number of uh, what people will call minor collisions where folks were having their mirrors knocked off yeah. of their cars. But it also led to an unsafe condition trying for pedestrians to walk across four lanes of traffic. Yeah. And there were three serious vehicle pedestrian collisions. And the way those happen was if somebody's walking across the street and the car in the left lane comes to a stop for the pedestrian that's in front of that car on the way to the next lane and somebody behind that car in the left lane is speeding, decides to switch lanes, and all of a sudden a moving car at high speed is right there with a pedestrian that's yeah, safely in the crosswalk until they're right in front of harm's way. And we were having that incident happen. Uh, and so I've told folks, I said, look, I know that it's, it's hard to explain. It's unpopular with a lot of people. It was a safety issue. That's why it qualified for a safety grant. That's the only way that you qualify for the kind of funding that we got there was to remedy an unsafe condition. And I would rather lose an election and uh, have good peace of mind that, no, I voted to make a dangerous condition safe rather than sit down with some parent and explain to them that I knew what needed to be done and didn't have the political courage to do it. And I won an election and you lost your child. Yeah. And uh, Because this road diet is not the most popular no, it's thing not. in Petaluma. Is it, so uh, less in favor than, uh, less, uh, less in favor than out of favor? With I it, don't know. I think you've got a very sharp divide. And it might be a 50-50 split, kind of yeah. like what we saw in the last election. Because bicyclists certainly like the road diet because of the safety. If people think about their kids trying to walk across that street or they had experience walking across the four lanes and realize how dangerous that condition was, pedestrians like it. Yeah. It was adopted in the Central Petaluma Specific Plan in 2003 as a condition when we went to the intensification of the downtown corridor and that this was how you get a walkable, safe community. How, how much of the opposition, though, do you think is as a result of information gap? Because a lot of what you're describing here in terms of public safety, in terms of people's children, in terms of incidents that have actually happened where people's lives have been changed because of accidents, um, how much do you think that people don't know about it? Because A lot. Certainly when you hear, hey, we're going to turn a really traffic-heavy area with two lanes into one lane— Obviously, that is not going to be a popular thing, but there are reasons for it. And again, I come back and, to... And the research is not that hard to find. If you even were just to Google the concept of road diets, uh, there's a lot of information out there. That's true, but specific to our community. Well, specific you know. to our community, I think our community is not that different than a lot of communities, especially, uh, well, in Sonoma County, I think. Uh, but in California itself, it was car-centric. Uh, a lot of these small towns were not designed for the traffic we have today. Uh, so they're all experiencing the same traffic problems. We're all having that. And uh, there are many cases, if, if, you, uh, you know, if you do some reading, some research, that it actually has uh, mitigated a lot of the traffic problems. And it's certainly made for a safer situation in a lot of places. It's just making this information digestible. And, and we've said this a couple times already, but this is important stuff that people are fired up yeah. about. And there's online, and maybe this is part of the reason for the discourse in our country, in our city, in our state, uh, degrading, is that th you go online and there's not a lot of impartial information. And it, it's tough to yes. try to get the information as a, okay, 
this is one side, here's the other side without a slant. You know, and I, again, I think that's one of the largest jobs that you have as the face of a community is to try to do your best to educate the voters so that they can vote in their best interest and make the decision, but have the information to make the decision. There was a very good article written in the Press Democrat uh, by Christy Warren, who's a new reporter with the Press Democrat, about the road diet. And she explained the why of it to the degree that you can with a number of column inches that, you know, I'm sure she had assigned, which is a challenge. Yeah. But she did a very good job with it. And I ran into someone in the community and said, you know, uh, I didn't like that road diet. And I never wanted to tell you because we're friends. And today I read that article. And for the first time, I understand it. So I think there's a huge information gap. Uh, people don't realize that the lanes were 10 feet in width and 11 feet is standard. If they think back of their experience, how many times were you, for instance, driving in uh, one lane on Petaluma Boulevard and somebody's trying to cut in front of you to get to turn right-hand turn and you're all backed up and somebody else is trying to park in a narrow yeah. space? Parking was always a bad situation on the boulevard. So what happened is... There kind of was a war between uh, the segment of downtown between uh, Washington and Western and yep. then between D Street and the theater district heading up toward Western. And it was about parking spaces. So in the segment with the road diet, we were going to lose four parking spaces between Western and Washington. The four places that would have allowed more cars to get in the queue to turn right off of Petaluma Boulevard. We were going to pick up 21 parking spaces because of the road diet down toward D Street and coming all the way back up toward Western for a net gain of 17 parking spaces downtown. Tough topic to make digestible for the public. I know. But continue. I know. No, and, so, I, and I appreciate it. I'm loving this. But I, 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 every time you go down and describe a, a particular issue, I'm like, yes, it makes total sense. I hope people are listening. So what happens is, is that this is a town that if we still had redevelopment funds, we would have put in extra parking structures by now, similar to the Keller Street Garage. The governor took away redevelopment yeah, funds. Sure, We're yeah. absent a funding source. So what I've told the community when they say we need more parking, there are ways to put in more parking, and we may see it downtown. I went for a walk with Holly Wick, one of the downtown merchants whose husband happens to be a very qualified planner with the county and a longtime member of this community, Tennis Wick, known as JT also by many. And uh, we explored looking at areas that we could put diagonal parking in, on additional streets downtown and build up the parking spaces. And that seems to be, relatively speaking, uh, a fix that ought to be achievable. And I, and I think that it'll happen. Uh, so that'll add some parking spaces. The road diet, if we continue it with a federal grant of $3.2 million, that we, if we just apply for it, we're gonna get it. Uh, if we apply for some lesser project that scores lower on safety issues, we may wind up with nothing. So this is kind of a crapshoot with the public's money in my way, way of thinking. You should go with your most expensive, best case, best foot forward. We could apply for a safety grant that would take uh, the road diet from D Street down to the traffic circle on Petaluma Boulevard, but not only just restripe the road, they would completely resurface the road. 
So drive Petaluma Boulevard and hit all of those bumps and think we could get rid of all of these bumps, and we should. So at that point, you are attempting to address two issues that we have to deal with, the the, the width of the road as well as the state of the road, um, or rather the condition of the road. Exactly. And then there'll be some other uh, projects that will be identified that would score less, but this is why I'll call it a crapshoot, because there's no guarantee that you'll score high enough by taking something that scores Less. When you talk about scoring, what, what is your scale here for scoring? What is that term, scoring? The Metropolitan Transportation Commission is the source of the grants that we would be seeking, and they have criteria that uh, you go through, and they will score each bullet point, and how does this meet the goals of the grant that you're seeking? And by far, the highest uh, scoring facility, and I don't have the staff report because it hasn't been generated yet, but it was by far the highest scoring two years ago when we went through this process on Petaluma Boulevard, uh, and the city council majority rejected the extension of it and went to the next highest score. So we already took out the one that was underneath it, directly underneath it. There's some on the council that think, well, it worked once, Let's roll the dice and see if it'll work again. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but those roads are uh, uh, Casa Grande and they're Caulfield. Now, if you put it to politics, very good politics to go to the east side where the bulk of the voters are and say, I'm going to try to fix your street, Caulfield, which isn't nearly the dilapidated condition that Petaluma Boulevard is, but that's on the west side where not that many people actually vote in town compared to the east side. You both mentioned something about decisions that were made 50 years ago, which are affecting us today. Uh, I, I think you mentioned putting the freeway in essentially divided the town in half, which had consequences. And Tom, you mentioned that the way the city was built so yeah. long ago with the streets and stuff, no one could have anticipated would that have we anticipated. would be where we're at now. Yeah. And I guess my question maybe for David or Tom would be knowing what you know now, what would you have gone back and changed uh, in terms of layout? Because there's a lot of things that if we could have not foreseen the issues they would have caused, uh, we'd be in a better position. Well, you know, in a traditional town without the geographic constraints, you would uh, set up the town with a grid. Yeah. And this town, though, was set up in the 1850s. And nobody ever dreamed there would be an east side of town. No. The towns in the 1850s are set up around the river. And so you have the river, and then the town went west of the river, and that was your town. And so you start then dividing the town up with a railroad track. What a great amenity. <laughs> yeah. But nobody dreamed that there would be trying to get across the railroad oh, track. Yeah. So you start putting all of these natural constraints into the town without, uh, and who could have had the vision to know what would happen? For me, it would be, wow, I'd just love to take it back to when this town had maybe 20,000 people tops in it. But you know, if the town only had 20,000 people living in it, half the people that I know and love wouldn't be living here. People who grew up in this town, your friends are being priced out of living in their own town and raising their families here. But that's not, you know, and I wonder if that troubles you because you don't really have control over where Sonoma County goes. You know, I mean, partly you come to a realization in this, we're going to be driven by market forces. And when I first got involved, people branded me as a no-growth guy. And I think there's still that perception. And it's not that. I'm not a no-growth guy. It's a question of what the city grows up to become. And so when you look at transit-oriented development models, you can build livable spaces that can create an affordable living style. 
because if you can build with the train, and this is the loss of redevelopment, and that's, I guess, what my regret is. When you say, what's the regret? It's the complete takeaway of financial, financial tools for local government. Because without money, you can't do anything. And when you look at a transit-oriented development model, and we have a blank slate right now where the rail stop will be at the smart property, that needs to have an intensity about it where people can take the train, would never need a car because they're right downtown. And so you could eliminate the expense of an automobile. You can uh, eliminate the expense of a yard by having some you know, multifamily housing that still has an amenity and attractiveness to it. So you can drive down those kind of costs. But my daughter lives and works in San Francisco. Yeah. And you go into San Francisco and you're looking for all the rent control ordinances and everything else that they have. Typical rent for a one-bedroom apartment, $30,000 a year and up. There's nothing affordable about it. We're a victim and a benefactor of our geographic proximity to San Francisco. That huge amount of wealth just ripples out. Which is partly why we're a community here, though, really. I think a lot of the shipping that was going on out of Petaluma in the 1800s was going right to the city. Well, absolutely. You know, it was heading out to the bay, out to the city, and then going around the world. But, yeah, our our proximity to San Francisco is, is one of the main reasons we're here. And it's why the prices are going to be beyond any form of control. You could get a housing development through, and that won't lower the cost of housing by getting that supply. It will increase the cost of housing because there'll be a marketing effort for those number of units, and the number of demand will so far exceed the supply. Well, and in your position, number one, there are forces that are very much so out of your control, which are countywide, region-wide. But also it's important to remember that you are just a vote on a council. Is that not correct? I mean, you don't have the power of a a king. You can't just say, all right, all of a sudden we're going to do this. How many people are on the Petaluma City Council? Seven, and you're right. I talked to Mayor Art Agnos from San Francisco um, about, you know, the weak mayor form of government. And uh, he said, well, he would never be mayor in that form of government. (laughs) (laughs) And he was a very good mayor in San Francisco. He was caught with with some tough situations with an earthquake and whatnot. But uh, Mayor Agnos, uh, he he was surprised to hear we're a weak mayor form of government. So I run the meetings. I have one vote of seven. And quite often I lose. Quite often I lose five to two. Sometimes we win, like Robert Redford said about uh, climate change and why do you do this? I can look back and I can look in the mirror and say, we don't lose them all. Lose them all. There was a development project that came not too long ago, and it was going to be approved. And Teresa Barrett, one of our council members, is very strong on the environment, and she was looking to salvage something on the way to the approval uh, for the environment on this project. And at the last layer of voting, we were able to insert with her leadership um, solar parking for the parking lot for the apartment units that will be built over near the Sheraton. 90 units, 90 parking spaces. Those 90 parking spaces will have shade and solar. Yeah, and you know what, which is an incredibly sound idea. But because of that, she's just added to what people to be consider the moonbeam factor. There are people that see this stuff and do not understand the value of, of 
Uh, well, and of course, moon, you're, you're referring to... Well, I mean, Moonbeam, uh, Governor Brown, but... <laughs> He's referred to as Moonbeam as sort of a, a dismissive thing about how liberal he is. <laughs> he now. would have been, yeah, California's hippie governor. <laughs> yeah, and so um, what I was going to say is that I've, I was struck by you mentioning the Redford thing and the Al Gore thing. It seems like in this day and age to even bring up climate change Correct. or Al Gore is risky. For Teresa Barrett to actually fight to get that added to, to the project was, was politically brave of her. Oh, uh, Teresa is one of the most principled, brave yeah. people. Uh, I would trust her with my yeah. life. I think we can all agree that the climate is changing. And yes. there's even when you talk about economics, how do you create affordable living? If, if you can't control the price of the home, can you do something to lower the cost of the utilities? Yeah. Now, in this case, the utilities are going to be piped into the office building that the developer owns, so the, you, the savings won't go on to the renter, but it'll go on somewhere, whether it's even on their bottom line or whatever. Yeah. They'll make the expenditure. They'll get the savings. That's all. That's fine. The, yeah. the environment will save some damage, but we should have that. I noticed the school district is able to put it yes. in as a matter of course, and good for them. I congratulate yes, them absolutely. on it. absolutely. Petaluma High School, Casa Grande High yeah, School. their parking lots. Incredible Each have idea. that. Yeah. We should have that as a mandatory requirement on any parking lot that's going in. Yes. Because it would be something that would uh, meet a requirement that we are obligated to meet, and that's greenhouse gas emission reductions yeah. on a countywide level, on a statewide level, on a city level in our general plan. We have obligations and blueprints that give us criteria, but we don't have a path to get there to achieve yeah. it. I guess the point I was making yeah. is it, it, we live in a tough time politically because for you to even mention Al Gore, if somebody hears you say <laughs> that, there is, a, there is a, a group of people who will just stop listening at that point and be like, oh, he supports Al Gore. <laughs> I don't want to hear what this guy has to say. And that's tough. Uh, it's tough yeah. to get messages to the entire electorate when there's a section of the electorate, which sometimes seems to be growing, but also sometimes it's just the loudest voice uh, who just don't want to hear certain perspectives. You know what I'm saying? I grew up at a time, and my degree was in a Bachelor of Science in Radio and Television Broadcasting with an emphasis in electronic journalism. Now, that was a long time ago before electronics changed to what they are today. I, I'm completely lost with electronics today. That was 1970. Walter Cronkite was king of the hill he did the news he just told you and that's the way it is the way it is and it was the way it was he he didn't cut any any slack anywhere journalism is completely lost today uh what they're taught in school i think is that you go out and you get one lie on one side and you get the other lie on the other side and then let the public decide well the public has already decided and 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 i'm also not a fan of that false equivalency Uh, Because that is, in my opinion, false equivalency. To say that in every argument, both sides are just as bad as the other side is a very damaging thing. And it's absolutely false equivalency. Because, yes, there is fault everywhere. But to just say, well, everyone's equally wrong is a good way to get to the standstill we're at where everyone feels they can't trust anyone. It used to be that journalism was a seeking of truth. And that, to me, is what the standard is. Who, what, why, where, and when. And the only disagreements I've ever had with the reporters really center around print the why. If you'll print yeah. the why. Now, I think we have pretty good reporters right now at the Argus. Uh, Matt Brown is doing a good job. Eric, and he has a hard name to pronounce, so I won't even begin to try, covers the beat at City Hall, asks good questions, and I think does a good job. Uh, 
And the young lady that is new with the press Democrat, uh, Christy Warren, she's 23 years old out of the University of Missouri. Well, I know journalism schools, that's one of the best, maybe the best. And she wrote an article on that road diet and people understood it. What I tell people is that one thing I've learned about this, people think it's the Burger King. They not only want you to solve their problem, but they want you to solve it their way. And you may be able to deal with their, their issue, whatever the issue is, but you may not be able to quite get there exactly the way they want you to. And then they're frustrated. Maybe they're even mad. You know, if you didn't do it, here it is. You asked about attitude. Uh, now, this person, over the course of a half an hour, became very respectful. Which person are we referring uh, to? This is a situation I'm going to lay out for you. Sent me an email, and it started out with an email. I'm an idiot. And you, it went on, you, yeah, you absolutely, idiot, yeah. I'm an absolute idiot. And okay. it went on from there. But he was nice enough to put his phone number down. So I thought, okay, well, so I called him. Now, the first 15 minutes of that conversation were kind of interesting back and forth because you're trying to gain a measure of respect in the conversation so you can really have a conversation. And it was about the issue of the road diet. You know, that's how polarizing that issue is. And after a while, he still doesn't like the road diet. I believe he will come to City Hall when we have it on an agenda, and he will do everything possible to convince the council not to do it. But he understands more about it, and he, understand, he understands why somebody would advocate for it and that that person isn't necessarily an idiot. I, I'll say this because sometimes hate and things like that get into it. Look, I might hate the position of any council member, at a given time. And people might hate my position. There's certainly been times where even Teresa has hated my positions on some things. I don't think I made uh, uh, many friends in the progressive liberal community with my stance on medicinal marijuana. I did vote for it. Uh, I think that the law will change in uh, November. You, yeah. you voted for medicinal marijuana, and you think that upset some people. I, because of the way I voted for it. I voted for it with restrictions yeah. that uh, the discussion around it was, do we have six plants outside, or do we have uh, growth inside and nothing outside? And I actually was the one that walked through it and said, I think that we ought to do something more than zero outside because there are people that don't have the ability to grow it inside and, and may need it. I don't know that six is the right number. In the end, we threw out three. That got into the media. People had an expectation that it would be three. And there was a movement the night when it came back to be finalized that it would go from three to six. And there was nobody in the public there in the council chambers because people had reached a comfort level that it's going to be three. That was everything that they heard at the prior meeting. It was everything that had been in the newspapers. I stuck with three. Um, somebody said, your friends will come and go, but you accumulate your enemies in politics. And so I'm in the accumulation phase. By splitting and compromising on an issue, I managed to hack off the people that wanted zero because I wanted three. By going for three, I managed to hack off the people that if I had just kept my mouth shut, they would have had six. Mm -hmm. 
And that was what I got told, and that was awful true. Yeah. <laughs> that was the truth because it was ready to be approved with six. So you made no friends on no it, friends. Isn't that a funny <laughs> thing? Because, again, you chose a compromised position in which neither side was happy. Tom has often said to me in jest that uh, he, he would never wish the, uh, the office, oh, yes. uh, <laughs> of your office, on a friend or a family no. member because it's such a tough thing. You know, yeah. you're, you are the face for uh, unpopular decisions. Well, and even the mayor as well as our council members. You, you read uh, letters the editor you read comments in the papers and and uh again i can't i can't thank you enough and our council members enough for the amount of time i've been to the meetings and i've, I've helped on on city committees and things like that over the years and the amount of extra work per committee that you may want to join per issue that you need to uh, bring yourself up to the level on uh the amount of work you're putting in you don't know exactly you don't want to judge how many hours you put in a week but i think it's quite high and you guys are doing it for virtually no money, and quite frankly, nowadays, virtually no thanks. And what but the virtually no thanks isn't true because I I, I mean um, this is not an ego trip. I'm sure it happens to all of the council members. I'm pretty much out there though. I'm, I'm out there because I do uh, two monthly programs on Petaluma Community Access. Yeah. Kay Chandler volunteers her time and films those. Uh, so we're at the animal shelter every month. Yeah. And then we do a community update with John Crowley, yeah. and he puts it on his Aquas yeah. page. He's great. And so uh, people do say thank you, you know, yeah. and it means a lot. It really yeah. does because yeah. it's just kind of like, you know, the other day in Petaluma Market, uh, somebody was selling cookies, and they said, uh, so, so just wanted to thank you. And I said, well, let me buy some of those cookies. Yeah. Turned out they were frozen cookies. I said, now I'm done. I can't take those cookies home. Yeah. You know the frozen cookies you have on sale oh, in the market? Well, of course, uh, full disclosure, we're practicing yeah. a form of journalism here. Yeah. Uh, I am uh, closely affiliated with Petaluma Market. It is a family-run operation that yeah. I am involved in. Well, yeah. see, and I can't buy the cookies because here's where the trap is. See, now is. this is the reverse here. It's like yeah, when, right. I, when I'm mayor, they're going to come up to me and say, what's the deal with that street light over there? And right now you're like, what's the deal with these frozen cookies, Jim Ages of Petaluma Market? Here's what happened. This is why it's going to be tough for me as, <laughs> as a Petaluma Market operator. They're going to, so many people are going to want to talk to me about the city's problems. You're, go you're ahead. Tell me, trouble. Yeah, but, tell me about the cookies. You see, I think you're trying to buy the senior vote with a Thursday discount. And I think it's oh, working. Oh, it's working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The toughest thing about if I ever choose to run for mayor, I thought about this, would be no longer the assumption of others that my political beliefs mirror them. So if I'm talking to an 85-year-old person who has a, a fairly strict set of beliefs, we don't talk about political stuff. But, you know, I'm a nice young guy. So, of course, we think that he's aligned with me perfectly. Similarly, if I'm talking to a 20-something who wants this, that, or the other... I promote shows at the Phoenix. We're probably aligned. If you were to take this job on and you're going to go for it, you need to say, these are my positions and these are what I'm going to fight for. And you know what? Right now, I want to know what his position is on the frozen cookies. <laughs> Hold on. He... <laughs> well, see, okay. So here's the, here, let me just finish yeah, yeah. the cookies then. Okay. okay so yeah. in the store, they're selling. Now I'm going to buy his cookies and I figure I'll take them to city council. <laughs> Because my wife is never going to let me eat those cookies. I'm never bringing those cookies home. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, and they had samples, the little cup of oh, the samples. Yeah. So I try a peanut butter chocolate sample. And I go, that is really good. That's a good and cookie. And so the, box of the bag of cookies is such that I thought, yeah, that'll... You know, we got to go to closed session. So we're not going to eat cookies <laughs> no, on the council diet. I said, we're going to be in closed session for an hour. Bring those cookies. So... I started to take the cookies, and I realized they're heavy, and they're cold, and they're frozen. 
frozen cookies. Now, I, I would have to cook them, which oh. means my wife would know I had them. I'd have to bring them home. And the young lady selling them says, well, you can freeze them. And I said, but we're having our kitchen remodeled. <laughs> so at that point, you lost a cookie sale. That's true. Um, this, is, this is interesting, though, because this is an experience that you had. So now, what, how would you like me to solve this issue? As, as your local grocery store operator, what can I do in the future to solve this issue? See, like an Otis Spunkmeyer, you would get your cookie dough and they'd have that little microwave oven and they'd cook it right there You'd for like you. You'd like them to be cooked there. Oh, at least the options. Okay. So the cooking station. A now, cooking. Now, 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 do you think that it is in fact realistic for every customer to have the option of having their cookies based on site? <laughs> I don't this is, know. This is the tough thing because running a grocery store is the art of working with what is possible. You've uh, got a great grocery store. <laughs> I, lo I love your store. And I, I appreciate I really that. Yeah, but here's the problem. It sounds like David wants his cookies and to have them cooked too. Well, see, the problem is, is I cannot eat those cookies at yeah, home. No. What I appreciate That's about what I appreciate about this tangent is, it is I don't know if this is just an analogy you are doing to what you deal with in your office, or if you're really upset about the cookies. Either way, it works really well. I'm because, not upset about no, no. the cookies. Well, I'm just frustrated because I can't issue. get them. Well, look, yeah. we we don't hate individuals. We just we just hate, hate the cookies. And you know, you're not. I upset love at the me. cookies. You're just I upset like at the reality. You just won't give me what I want. <laughs> I want a cooked cookie. cookie that I can eat. That's but to your point about amassing uh, enemies as opposed to friends in politics, <laughs> it is a vulnerable position one puts themselves in when they run for office. Even yes. if they yeah. do flip-flop, even if they do change once they get in office, you still have to declare. And the very nature of declaring, especially in 2016, is going to put you in opposition to some people's political beliefs. And from my vantage point, say peddle in the market, there will be people who would not support that market anymore if me or an individual had political beliefs counter to them that they felt really strongly about. And, that, and in my mind, that is the reality of the world we live in politically in this era. And that's a really striking reality. Uh, I think there's some truth to that. I, I've had people that, you know, want to run for political office tell me they want to get involved, but uh, their business would be devastated if they did. Yes. Uh, for me, uh, I, unquestionably, I alienated some people in the community with a very sharp contrast going back to the first time I ever ran for office in Petaluma. Um, that was 1998. And you were, previous to uh, running for mayor, you were a municipal bond salesperson, is that correct? Uh, a municipal securities principal. Municipal, excuse me. Uh, no, it's okay, because there's a difference from a salesman to, um, I did an analysis of municipal bonds. I did position municipal bonds in portfolios. Um, but it's it's not a... It's not like what you would think of a sales position, really, um, although there's selling involved. One would look at a person coming from that background and maybe assume a certain set of political beliefs. In your political beliefs don't match what that assumption would be. Not at all. Yes. And counter, so there were, you're, you're very perceptive because it is so counter, that business, the business model. You exactly. talk about investment bank, then you talk about the bond desk, and you're starting to get into some very conservative areas. Absolutely. Uh, what I have said is that I'm fiscally conservative, but that I'm socially liberal. And, and the way you reconcile that is you have to know that you have limitations about what it is you can do from a social standpoint. And so I don't try to bite off more than we can chew, or I don't try to do anything that will create uh, something that's not fiscally sustainable. I, I took a lot of heat because I went along with an extension of a garbage contract in Petaluma. 
from the environmental community. We reached a point where I felt like we really had no choice but to accept what was a superior offer. It was an extra $8 million uh, to extend a contract. The city needed money. Um, I would probably do that again, faced with the same dire consequences that we were looking at. So revenue streams are important. Yeah. My background in municipal finance, I could see that our revenue streams were drying up, but our expenditures were yeah. going to go on and even grow. So you make that trade-off with the environment. You bite the bullet. Um, as far as, like you say, about somebody wanting to run, it depends what you want to run for. If you want to run to be somebody and cut ribbons and have a big smile on your face and have your picture in the paper and have everybody tell you what a great guy you are, that's one model. If you want to do something... That's a completely different type of candidate. So you want to do something, I want to advocate for uh, the flood control project when we were working on that. I want to advocate for a wastewater treatment plant that will assure a water supply if we hit a drought, and by gosh, we did. Uh, in 2004, we got a very strong garbage company, Green Waste Recovery, yeah. Unfortunately, they were unable to crack the rest of the county, and eventually the business model just wouldn't hold up. Uh, they're down in the South Bay. So they sold the contract, as they were allowed to do under the contract with Petaluma. Uh, but that was a major environmental uh, accomplishment. It just wasn't sustainable yeah. because of what happened and how it played out. Uh, so more than wanting to be somebody, I wanted to do things. So I keep looking and saying, okay, what do I want to do next? <laughs> you know. Okay, two points. Uh, you keep ringing the quote up. We don't lose them all, the Redford quote. Yeah. That's why they stick into it. My thought about the argument of continue of running is that if you don't, somebody else will. You know, if one doesn't run, then somebody else, maybe with a set of beliefs much different than their own, may run. So there is value in doing this. Well, I, I think we saw that uh, in the election in 2003, and I think we saw it again in the most recent election. Uh, and the irony of it is those votes for mayor were so very close. It was a 78-vote margin when I was elected first time in 2003, and it was an 84-vote margin this last time around. And, uh, you know, 84 votes out of almost 20,000 ballots cast, that's about as razor yeah, thin as you can get. Yeah, it really is. And we were talking about this before the program, but I'd like to bring it up now. Uh, you, you won by how many votes this last time? 84. 84. Your onstage with Jim and Tom appearance in 2014 got between 700 and 800 uh, listens. So I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know uh, how the oh, correlation no. works. But <laughs> We don't win I, I don't, without that no. interview. <laughs> but, but you made a really good point as we were discussing about how May potentially onstage with Jim and Tom had something to do with that victory, uh, about how every Everyone involved in your campaign has something to do with that. I'll tell you this. Yeah. This was the most amazing thing to me. Um, because to kind of walk back through it, on election night at 8 o'clock in the evening, we were 570 votes behind. By 2.30 in the morning, we were 211 votes behind. So we closed a lot of gap. When they counted all of the votes four weeks later, we That's won the right. election by 84, 84. votes. So many people in town thought that we had lost, and I kept telling them, our vote, is, it hasn't been counted yet. Yeah. There was a huge voter uh, drop-off at the polling places of what would otherwise be the mail-in votes. Yeah. And so when it hit that we had actually won the election, 
there was a groundswell of uh, relief amongst the supporters of our campaign. We had an, it, virtually an impromptu event that was put on by volunteers, a no-host bar. Uh, Gary Grubb and his band volunteered to perform, and there were over 200 people on December 30th, the night before New Year's Eve, downtown, celebrating. They just wanted to be together. And it was the most inspirational night that I had of thanking people. And I could legitimately say to every single one of them that it was because of you that we won the election. And they could legitimately believe that it was the truth. Because each of those people that were there that night had contributed in a way that certainly led to 42 people voting for me that had they voted the other way, that's what 84 is. Yeah. It's, it's really divided in half because yeah. you take one away and you add one. Yeah. And so everybody felt like Boy, they were kind of actually the difference in that election. Yeah. And it was true. They were. And, you know, in all fairness, that's actually uh, quite a statement for Mike besides because yeah. uh, you, uh, you, you were fighting against another great candidate, I think. And- exactly right. Because you could take away from this, you could say, okay, here was someone that had been on the city council for 12 years yeah. and has made a lot of friends and deservedly yeah. so. Yeah. I don't think very many people would say that there were similarities in our politics no. or in how we would vote. The, and, and I don't know how many people studied and knew the issue, but statistically, plenty on each side of the issue. Yeah. And to have something that closely divided, but it isn't just once, you could say the same thing about Clark Thompson in 2003. Oh. Clark's really a That's, nice man. And you yes. ran against he, this man in 2003. In 2003. So. Yeah. yeah. And that was 78 votes. So when people say the town is divided, it is divided closer down oh. the middle than you can begin to imagine. Yeah. Did you feel, though, a different climate in 2003 running than in 2014? Uh, granted, I was paying less attention. I was a lot younger then. We were all a lot younger then yeah. in 2003. <laughs> but it, it just it feels more personal now. It feels yeah, like I, political I, uh, disagreements are more personal. And, Tom, you, you can attest to this, too. You you read all those awful comments yeah, on the I online yeah, newspaper. I, I, I do. <laughs> you know, I used to be uh, religious about reading letters to the editor, I think. And I, and I would go on and, and uh, with, the in, uh, with the Internet coming into being. You could go and read newspaper letters to the editors all over the country. Um, and uh, just in the last five years, it's gotten so angry and so divisive, and it's it's not the same experience for me. I used to read to get other points of view and other information, but now I don't trust most of the letters that I'm reading. I, I I'm thinking that they're they're getting their information from one side and they're sticking to that, and it just doesn't seem as that as that either side is as well read as to what the other side is truly thinking or what the attributes of the other side uh, might be working towards. Well, oftentimes that side you're describing is not uh, thinking about what the other side believes, or thinking about what a caricature of the other side yeah. believes. And that's, that's the tough situation. It's gotten a lot angrier. Well, see, and that's why I, uh, I, it's true, honest to gosh. Unless somebody makes me read something, I'm not reading it. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Now, it, it, because I'm going to get a staff report. I have access to ask all of the questions that I want to ask about every issue that comes before the city. And I'll do that actually before the council meetings, because when you're running the meeting, that yeah. you, you need to know what the issue is yeah. on all sides rather than discover it out there in the public. 
The same is true, I think, in most cases for the city council members. They will ask questions that they already know the answers, but they want the public to hear that their concern was asked and here's the answer. Yeah. And so a lot of the questions that are asked, it's not that they don't know. They do know. They just want to get it out there for the public to be able to know, and that's, that's the way they'll do that. So uh, I will sit down and I'll talk to the city manager before every meeting. I will talk to the city attorney if I need to before a meeting. I will call the department head if I need to to learn more about what the issues are uh, on what's coming, if it's complex and not self-apparent in the staff report. And so uh, I don't need letters to the editor to tell me what the facts are. But uh, I'm pretty aware of what the feeling is about issues in the community because I'm out enough that people will approach me and and tell me or send me emails. Um, I'm not one that's so computer savvy, but email is a wonderful thing for people that are looking at this. If they really have an issue and they want to address what I've found, and I'll ask people now, put it in an email. Because what that does is I won't misinterpret their concern. They'll tell me exactly what it is. They also think about it enough to make sure that they get it right of what their concern is. So there's no misunderstanding. And then I can take exactly what their concern is because they put it in writing and send it to the city manager and carbon copy the department head that would deal with that issue. And we'll at least find out what's going on. So what I've promised people is I'll get you an answer. You might not like the answer because I can't control necessarily that, but I'll get you an answer. Well, you mentioned last time you were on the show about how a lot of your job in connecting with the public is not solving the problem. It's directing them to the person responsible for that problem. Exactly. Because a lot of people assume uh, bec- that you're the mayor, that y- you're responsible for this. But in fact, there's so many committees. There's so many different people, so many elected officials that would be more appropriate than you. But you are sort of a corridor to that. What I'm careful about is I won't send it to an elected official, and here's why. Because I won't get into a situation where I wound up uh, dragging us all into a Brown Act violation. Yeah. Because I don't know, under the law, we're allowed to communicate with three out of the seven. Okay. Oh, and that's what the and Brown that's what the Brown Act stipulates. Right. Not so a majority. Exactly. And I'm one of the three, so I'm already, you know, so I won't communicate to council members where somebody sends something in, even if I know, oh, that person knows all about this issue. I, I won't open them up to that and I won't open me up to that, but what I will do is I'll go to the city manager and if it's a police issue, carbon copy the police chief and then send it, and most often they'll get a response back from the police department explaining what's going on. Or if it's something to do with public works, their sewer, yeah. something like that, they'll get, they'll get a response back from the appropriate department person. Slight change of subject, but it's been weighing heavily on my mind. David, if you had to guess, would our fairgrounds still be our fairgrounds where they are in 20 years? And I think that's important. That is a topic that people talk a lot about, the future of the fairgrounds. Future of the fairgrounds. Okay, so all I'll say to you about that is that if I could solve the problems the way I wanted to solve them, um, you know, I would have solved that in 2006 because what what we had at the time was a gentleman named Merritt Paulson who wanted to put in a $20 million baseball stadium there uh, and bring professional baseball and concerts to Petaluma. That opportunity would have extended the fairgrounds lease at that time. It was before we ever hit all of these budget crunches and everything else by 50 years. 
So when you say, what are your regrets? And I was having trouble thinking of them. Yeah. You know, regret. That is a huge regret. Well, it was uh, a missed opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Le- my intention was less regret uh, seeking and yeah. more so like, boy, if only we knew then what we know now. No, no. And that's one of those and, situations. And maybe that's it. If we knew back in 2006, I think the fair directors had a myopic view of the security of the auto race track and the revenue. And yes, there are people that love that auto race track. You're sitting with one. Well, and I was yeah. hung in effigy by, you know, yeah. uh, and I'll know. never forget. I had a conversation. <laughs> maybe you know the name Sean McCoy. Yes. And, and I had a conversation that went for hours with Sean McCoy. Okay. And I get the passion and the love that yes. the people that love that auto race track yeah. Have for it, and you were hung in effigy because you yes. shared uh, less passion and love. Well, for it that. wasn't sharing less passion; it was about choices. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. we've yeah. got twenty <laughs> acres here yeah. that is a dirt track racetrack that makes a lot of noise that a lot of people oh, complain yes, about. Does. Yes, and another person would drop in a brand new sports venue and concerts. And uh, but I, you know, I got to understand Sean McCoy's perspective Good. a little better on what he enjoyed, and he compared yeah. that place to Wrigley Field. Oh, yes. You know, the, and, and he said, well, look, it is. I don't... It's one of the last few dirt tracks left in the country. And he said that... We're he, having a debate right here oh, on yes. stage with Jim See, and, and I, 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 So I can have empathy for that yeah. side of it because he said, look, I don't... Uh, what did he say? I don't live to race... I race to live. And he does. That was yeah, his quote. You bet. And he does, does he say that well. all the time? You know, I haven't talked to Sean in many years, but it was it's certainly in his blood, and, and uh, he loves it, and, uh, and he does it well. Yeah, I'm sure he does. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure he loves it. And yes, they hung me an effigy out there. That hurt, that hurt a little bit. Come on. Now, when you say they hung you an effigy, they actually like what? Uh, Do they put up a, a a dummy with your face on it? Or is that? Or are you speaking? Are you speaking metaphorically? Yeah, no. If I remember right, there was a dummy up there with a rope, with a you know, yeah. You know what? Though? But maybe that, I'm just that's a little I'm, overboard. Nope, that's a bit overboard. You know, that's my recollection of it. But maybe yeah. I've just imagined that or saw it in a cartoon. Well, maybe now. the criticism. <laughs> maybe the criticisms were so harsh that it felt like that. Yes, maybe. But you know what? That little exchange there is such a great snapshot about why the passions get so strong in a city, in a community, in a state, in a country. Because to Sean McCoy, who I don't know, oh, but uh, he loves his racing. Yes. And yes. so many people who grew up in a town like this, they love yes. their town. And you, you and also, they, and we love their memories and and the legacies. And, uh, and and I admit that's I'm legacy heavy, and and I get hung up in that stuff. But uh, yeah, it's a having that dirt track in this town is still a comfort to it's me. It's just tough because you have you have things like people went to school in a place which is now no longer there to make way for a shopping center. You have yeah. you have the county changing and Petaluma changing with it and things that people look to for years are no longer there. So it's very passionate stuff. And here's the story with the uh, Kenilworth Junior High that you, you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, We're talking was, about the Target Shopping Center. People Target, have heard so much yes, about it. Regency. And I was instrumental in bringing that. Yeah. Um, and I would do it again. And um, Well, I think we got a better junior high out of it, didn't we? Absolutely. Yeah. So here's what hung in the balance. The school district was up against uh, accepting a grant to refurbish Kenilworth Junior High. Had they accepted the grant, they would have by obligation have had to keep that campus for 30 years. The city wanted to buy the property. We had it appraised. The appraisal came in right at $16 million. The school district needed, if the memory is right, 22 or $23 million. It was one or the other, to build the new campus. The school district could not sell 
the high school, the junior high campus unless they got enough to build a new one because they had to have a campus. Regency flew out on their corporate jet from Jacksonville, Florida. We all went to lunch uh, at Dempsey's in the course of a two and a half hour lunch and went through the situation. Myself, the city manager, the finance director, and the corporate officers, and the CEO of Regency. And we walked down through that, and they um, came to an agreement that they would pay cash for the property, although they had a definite reluctance, and it was outside their business model and their comfort zone, but they understood that the school district needed cash to build the campus. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't be without it. Yeah, and again, to provide context, a a school that was there forever was demolished and yeah. a shopping center was put was in a shopping center a, a shopping center uh that a lot of people in petaluma were not comfortable with going in for traffic concerns and just for integrity of what they deemed exactly to be right exactly <laughs> right all of these things are true then when you look at the whole situation the whole city if you can get away from how you would put together a city you would never put a junior high campus with young lungs adjacent to a freeway. Freeway, absolutely. And so you have those issues. Then the student body itself, none of the student body currently lived close to the campus. In fact, people that lived close to the campus were going to Petaluma Junior High yeah, because of the distribution of enrollment. So you had a complete dislocation of traffic patterns every morning and every afternoon when school assembled and when school let out. What was unfortunate was you also had a number of years where people got used to a traffic condition that was much improved in that quadrant because you no longer had the traffic from the school. And then all of a sudden you had the traffic from the shopping center. Yeah. But it was the shopping center that allowed the Kenilworth Junior High to be built at an area of the city where the student body lived closer to And would be better campus. served and would be safer for the young more modern. All the way down with all of that. I yeah. bet as mayor and as a person on the council, when you are a part of a decision like that, regardless, I mean, the fallout was what it was. But and it's that, still there. That, that's, <laughs> that solved a number of issues which were on your plate. And anytime you can do something which solves a number of things, which is uh, taking care of the kids with the lungs and putting the junior high in a smarter place. And, of course, I mean, sales tax revenue is not but, nothing. And that's a question. Did, it was did, huge. Did, yeah. it, did, it reach the, uh, did it reach the heights that you were hoping as, as far as the numbers for uh, the projected numbers for the sales tax no. revenues? No. Uh, a lot of things have happened between now and then. In fact, the dangers of it, partly. Uh, there were a lot of reasons why the development stalled out. In the very beginning... It was Regency itself because they had no urgency because they couldn't build their shopping center until the new junior high was built. So they had all sorts of time to look around. So Regency wanted to explore, uh, what if we bought the swimming pool and expanded the retail site? And the swimming community went absolutely ballistic. Because the swimming pool, much like the racetrack, these are things that people look to and have been there since they were children in some cases. Exactly. It's the only one we have. Well, and I understand it. I understand that. Uh, But what happened was the rumor got ahead of the fact. That's true. Because nobody was going to take away the swimming pool without a swimming pool or multiple pools around town replacing it. You know, so it was all on a what if. And, Regency, and you also had uh, fears that the skate park was going to disappear, too. All, all, all of, that, of that. All of that yep. wrapped up. I mean, that was the interesting part of it. So anyway, that period of time comes and goes. Then here comes Merritt Polson, the gentleman that wanted to build the baseball stadium. 
adjacent to the shopping center in place of the racetrack. Nope. We're back. Now, if you put a baseball stadium next to the shopping center, that was going to change the design and layout of the shopping center because they certainly wanted to be positioned to take advantage of the hundreds of thousands of yeah. additional people that would be coming in for 140-plus events a year. a year. And so Regency kind of stepped back to see how that would play out. Then the uh, baseball stadium opportunity went kaput in October of 2006. By the end of 2006, the city council was unable to make findings of fact on greenhouse gas emission reductions and on water supply. And the general plan, which was outdated and run out, was unable to be recertified with a new general plan. And that stalled everything in the city from 2006 until 2008. The new general plan was adopted in May of 2008. And the world's economies fell apart September yeah. 15th of 2008. And then nothing was going to get built because everything collapsed. What a fascinating amount of information for a single issue. I mean, it's a lot of issues stacked, but a single narrative, I suppose. It is. And, and, and in 2008, you're not even at to the point to where it was even close to getting built because there was a bunch of legal stuff that happened. Uh, groups were, were fighting against it. So, you know, it, it almost seems like in your position and in the council people's position that you have to weigh the community's uh, emotional wants and needs oh, and the with, country's the, economic with, history. with the well with the well i'm talking about more on the city level the community's emotional uh, needs and wants with the financial realities that that you are in and, and try to triangulate feel around in the dark the best worst decision a lot of these times well that for me was a, a tough one because i had sat there and i had talked to regency when they first came in and there was a lot of miscommunication and warped feelings and whatnot and so all of a sudden, I'm being painted as the one that's stopping the development. I never wanted to stop that's that true. development. I did want to shape it from day one, talking to them the very first meeting when they came to lunch at Dempsey's at the very beginning about how the quality of design needed to be such. And I'm not sure that we achieved that. I learned a lot about zoning codes and general plans don't mean much with language unless it's in a zoning code that actually restricts, requires, and makes it not discretionary uh, to build to a certain standard. This is a nuanced issue. How in the world would one print that entire thing you just sh showed us really, really in an article? Really complicated. Yeah. Really complicated. Yeah. And it has a long history of steps about it. Uh, I wasn't on the city council between uh, actually January 2007 until January of 2009. Uh, I didn't run for re-election after the first term as mayor. I went and did a radio show. And so I took those two years off. But I came back because I decided, okay, I can either do a radio show and talk about things or I can re you know, Ignite. acquaint myself with the Petaluma issue and try to make a difference about something. Did your intention running at that point differ than when you first ran based on what you learned in office the first yeah time i'm sure i grew and changed and you know you, you grow into issues and you have background and um you learn a lot so i'm sure i was not the same person coming back but neither was the economic climate i took out the papers and filed in august of 2008 and at that time everything was getting ready to boom yeah September 15th, 2008, John McCain suspended his presidential campaign because everything collapsed and fell apart. That's what dire straits the banking crisis created. 
So by the time we got in in January of 2009, uh, it was a completely different world. You, you no longer had financial capability to do things that maybe you had talked about doing in August. That's how different it was. The stock market, by March 9th of 2009, the stock market had come down to like 6,600 on the Dow. Now, and, it, and where is it at now about? It, oh, now it is at 18,400 yeah. or thereabouts. Just there to provide context, that's, that's a third of... Uh, and it had it been as high as 14,300. The reason those numbers are important is one of the major expenses we have is our mandatory required contributions to the pension plans, particularly for police and fire. And we get a bill from CalPERS. This is how much you will pay. And right now, public safety, it's about 52% of their pay is what we're paying in to their pension. So if an employee, just to keep it in round numbers, if somebody was making $100,000, some do, some don't, but some make more, some less, but $100,000 salary, $52,000 deposit into their pension account. Yeah. You and I are putting in, if we're lucky, uh, even with the age differential, $5,500 maybe yeah. into a Roth IRA and cap out. But a lot of that capital was coming from a successful market at the time, wasn't it? Yes. It, it, so ha- the market has bounced back, yet our pension funds are not being funded in the same way now? Or? Okay, let's take what it does. The market has bounced back, but over what period of time? And there's something called the magic of 72. And what that means is two multipliers and product that equals 72 is how long compounded interest takes to double. So if you get a 9% rate of return for eight years, nine times eight is 72. 72. 8% return takes nine years to double. So if we take the market from 14,150 or thereabouts in 2007, yeah. Take it down to 6,600 in 2009. When we get back to 14,300 or something, and it takes us, what, 2007 yeah. to 2015 to do that, yeah. we're not Seven, even because we should have almost doubled by then. Here's why your job is so hard because of what you just laid out. That's yeah, a right. lot of numbers. It's a lot. And that's of a numbers. lot of information. It's a lot of numbers, yeah, but, and that's yeah. a that's a hard thing for people to wrap their mind around. And and it, I think it's it, for you with the background you have. This is not as hard because this is this is right. you've spent a lot of time with big numbers. But, but not you've Dave, spent, Hold on, one more thing. You've spent a lot of time with with budgets and all that. It's so difficult, I think, for you with the familiarity you have with these numbers and the ease with which you're able to look through, navigate, right. and, and make decisions to connect with people who don't have that background. Now, that's, that's a tough thing. But that, I want to finish that, that line of thought. So, David, if we keep rolling the numbers we're rolling now, do we come back around to the black ever that we'll be funding our pension programs again through, these, through the market? No. No, not we, anytime soon. Ever is a long time. Yeah. But it won't happen anytime soon because uh, you have people that are pulling money out yeah. and you're substandard and you're trying, you're on a rat race trying to catch up. They have something called the assumed rate of return in these yeah. pensions. And for years, CalPERS assumed you would achieve an 8% rate of return. Yeah. So they assumed the portfolio would double oh. in size on a rate of return. Yes. That assumption was the portfolio would double in size every nine years. Nine years. So to get it back down to simple, let's suppose the portfolio doesn't double at all. Then we're 50%. Making it up on our own. So And the problem is inside of pensions, the way a pension normally is funded until you get into the interest rate environments that we're in now, and this is part of the challenge, you, you normally would fund pensions with uh, investments that would create a consistent stream of revenue. 
and that would be bonds. The 30-year federal treasury pays 2.2%. If we go to the law of 72, that means if you funded it with 30-year treasuries, it would take you about 34 years before you would double. See, what I think is tough is talk of pensions puts the public to sleep. It, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying that disrespectfully. No, we need I'm, to hear I'm just, this. Well, we, we yeah. do, but it's like how many people hear all those numbers and stay tuned in and don't either skip forward or turn off, or if they're reading an article, put it down. And that is why the job on the city it's council, so which you have, is so tough because the, these details are why it's so hard to get it, things but it's, done. It's so important that we do have that discussion and people do understand that it's, it could take forever to... Well, not forever, but an awful long time to get us out of that hole. And I wonder, is that reason? Is that another reason why we're not seeing these redevelopment funds ever coming back to us? Will we ever get those monies back? I, I don't know. And it's, and it's a tragedy because some communities abused redevelopment monies. They, they did all sorts of things with it, with swimming pools, sports stadiums, whatever it was. Uh, in the case of Petaluma, we really did the nuts and bolts. We were trying to get yeah. the infrastructure uh, brought up to a level that you actually could have economic development. We need structured parking garages. 20% of that money went to moderate and low-cost housing. We had built 1,800 or thereabouts moderate and low-cost housing units in Petaluma over about a 25-year period. This year, we'll get 70 units as the 15% set aside on housing developments that, that come in. To me, programs like rent control, they pass the burden that is a societal burden onto the backs of private developers and private property owners, and I'm not in favor of that. I think it's an unfair burden to put on one segment of the society. Uh, It's a societal issue. We should be taking care of it at the governmental level so that we all pay a fair share into a community benefit. And I'm sorry I keep doing this, but rent control is something that I would imagine at a glance is very popular for people who live in this county, particularly people who are having a tough time affording to live here. And then to hear, you know, a person who they would deem to be the more liberal choice of the two candidates say that, yeah, I'm not so in favor of that. That's that's going to be confusing some people. But then you listen to the reasoning and and it's fairly it sounds fairly sound. There's there's a logic behind it. And and here's the problem with the rent control is, look, we did a very brief investigation into it because I went around the building and asked people, okay, that have worked in the field and in other places. And if anything, they underestimated is what we've learned what the expense would be. But the number that I got out was it would require a bureaucracy of about a million dollars to set up in Petaluma. Uh, as we've kind of gone through it and seen what's happened in Santa Rosa, they're talking about $3 million to set up something there. And I would imagine you mean the enforcement of rent control, exactly. making sure that nobody's taking advantage of this. Yeah. And once, the once they do violate it yeah. and all, and how do you collect and what do you do and all that. So that's what you mean when you say a million yeah. or $3 million. So even if it's a million, which turns out to be on the low side and in Petaluma size of our city, maybe one and a half million, that's money that would come at the expense of funds that we're allocating to the Boys and Girls Club, to Meals on Wheels. Uh, It's very real issues and it's feeding the same people that you might be trying to deal with their rent control issues. So to me, the better approach is the return of redevelopment. What I've told people that are advocating, you know, for affordable housing projects, let's all turn our attention to Sacramento. That is where they're capable of dealing with it. Too often people will confuse 
uh, desire with capability. I might have the desire to try to do something, but I have no capability to get it done locally. Well, David, let me ask you. Uh, so the redevelopment funds that we'd be taking from Sacramento, would they be equal to uh, what percentage of that fund we'd be getting back is actually being paid by us, the citizens of Petaluma already? Uh, it, how much of our tax money would we be taking back? Okay, so unless you live in a redevelopment agency, you're not necessarily paying anything. But to kind of get it down no. to numbers that people uh, can understand, when you pay your property taxes here yes. in Petaluma, uh, we're keeping 12 cents on the dollar. And so a typical household probably pays less in property taxes to the city of Petaluma yeah. than they're paying for their cable TV bill on a monthly basis. Yeah, and, yeah, sure. and in exchange for that expenditure, they're getting police and fire services. Uh, we're expected to do the roads, but we won't. We haven't uh, made a meaningful expenditure out of the general fund for roads. The money is being consumed for general services now. Yeah. And we've trimmed the general payroll from 350 people or thereabouts before the recession. I think the number now is somewhere in the 290 range. The police department went from 77 uniformed officers to 65. Yeah. They went to a low of 62. Through grants, we've replenished uh, three positions. Uh, we need to augment police services. I, I, I really think that that's true. 911 response times. Uh, people have been complaining about that a little bit. It, you know, it all comes back to money. It you know? does. And and so we may have been pulling the curtain back a little too much in terms of like numbers, 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 but that is the reality of your job. It does fact, come back to speaking of police, there's a police car <laughs> going by right now. It was disappointing to me uh, two years ago to not be able to support a tax measure that was on the ballot. And uh, it was a general tax, and it would have gone into the general fund. The reason I couldn't support that, as much as we need money in the general fund, we also need to be leveling with the public about where that money yeah. is going to go. Yeah. And so what happened in that is because it was general, they talked about everything that conceivably you could do. Yeah. And the number of things that they talked about added up to a half a billion dollars of expenditure on $150 million of revenue capability. And so it, it, it just, what, what it came down to, to get it down to sound bites, because that's what you try to do in a campaign, is to get it down to where somebody can understand it when you're standing on their porch. Trying so, to be digestible, but also be as honest as you can be in 30 seconds. Exactly. Yeah. So what you could say out of that tax measure two years ago, look, we could do almost anything. That would be true with that kind of money, one cent increase in sales tax. But it's also true that we can't do everything. And this approach is they're showing you everything, but they're not showing you where a lot of the money is going to go. And that would have been, in my opinion, into compensation. But don't you feel like the level of detail that's involved in real governance and the amount of numbers and the way all these programs stack upon one another, it becomes very easy to be dishonest. It becomes very easy to either paint with a broad brush to make everybody happy, and it also becomes very easy to paint someone's record in a negative way because if you, for example, are unhappy with maybe this aspect of this law, but you generally support the concept, you just don't like being executed, uh, you could be painted negatively about this. It's Tonight has been very illuminating as to how much information our public officials, even on the city level, have to deal with and go through, yeah. and then funnel it to the public in a way that is digestible uh, so that the public can ultimately make the decisions because we live in a democracy where the public votes on this stuff. But there's so much information that how can any person who's raising a family, 
Uh, it's just, it's tough. It's tough stuff. Partly what I would say to people is, because you're, you're not going to have time to go through and, and catch up on every issue and know what it is. So you, you maybe should try on a local level, get a feel for the person and understand that that person isn't going to do everything that you like because I don't do everything that I like. I bite the bullet and know why I'm okay. This is what I got to do. Uh, in a lot of ways, it pained me to extend our garbage service contract. We needed the money. So you bite the bullet and you do it. In hindsight, you know, I would have probably, there's a lot of controversy out there about garbage services yeah, right in the now. county right now. So <laughs> I, I know, think in the city as well. You in that moment, I would assume, could say to yourself that you did what you thought was the best given what was available to you in that moment. Bill Clem, the old umpire in baseball going back to the turn of the century, and he said, I never missed one in my heart. I, I still, that's, that's the test to me is that you can look at it and you can say, have I made mistakes? Yes. You know, because I recognize some of the mistakes in retrospect. And my friends never tire of needling me. And I won't tell you what the mistakes are, but they know and I know. And they never tire of needling me about it in, in good humor. And they've earned that right yeah. to do that. And, um, but yeah, you're, you're going to make some mistakes, but hopefully you didn't make any in your heart and you had a valid reason at the time, and you did the best judgment you could apply to it, and then you've got to live with it. Yeah, I think being able to laugh at some of your mistakes helps you to live a long, full life. I, I believe it or not, um, I can laugh at them. I mean, you you got to. you got to laugh at yourself. I do take this seriously, trying to yeah. do the very best that I can do, because you are entrusted with something. Uh but at the end of the day, I'm going to walk away from this whenever that is and look back on it and say, wow, what an experience. All of the information that uh, council members and mayor become privy to, is that available? Is all of that information available to the citizens if we wanted to see it? Not all of it, uh, because issues that are wrapped up around personnel or labor negotiation okay. or uh, real estate contract purchases oh. that are being contemplated, if they're consummated, yes. But if they're being contemplated, uh, no. Um, lawsuits of any kind. Okay. So where there's yeah. litigation, threats of litigation. Um, if you look and you will see uh, on every council agenda virtually, it'll list closed session. And yes. it lists items on closed session. So that information is confidential. It's revealed inside a closed session. It stays in closed session. Okay. That's it. The other question is, people are always saying, well, you know what? Somebody needs to audit that city. We need to find out where our money's being spent. Is it not true that that audit is out there every year? Yes. And you know what? We win <laughs> awards on our audits. Uh, the interesting thing is some very well-meaning uh, ladies came to City Hall. and God bless them and God love them. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. their, well, and their uh, recommendation was we needed to go through the budget line by line. <laughs> now, you almost... You know, you want to chuckle, but you want to be respectful. <laughs> yeah. But they don't know how many times we've gone through that budget line by line yeah. by line, yeah. you know, trying to figure out, okay, it, it's a much simpler budget now than it was back in 2003. Because when you had money, you had capital improvement projects, you had yes. priorities, you had, do you want to put money here? Do you want to put money there? Where is it that you want to put the money? Yeah. Now you're sitting down looking and you're looking at projections and you're saying, okay, this might work this year. How does it look a year, 
two years and three years out. Yeah. And the real challenge, without trying to get too complicated into the money, what economists will call it is we're in an experience in California, in municipalities, in counties, and districts, all over, something you call a structural budget deficit. And what that means is, is that your obligatory expenses are growing at a rate that exceeds the growth in your revenue stream. And eventually, your expenses will consume all of your revenue. And that's the challenge that we have. Contractually, we have obligations to make contributions for uh, pensions that are defined benefit plans so that when the market underperforms and doesn't meet projections, we have to pay in more and make up that loss. And when you get markets that go down as dramatically as from 14,000 on the Dow to 6,600 on the Dow, that's a lot of loss makeup. Yeah. People can understand that. Well, and when it comes yeah. to people's pensions or it comes to their raceway or it comes to their swimming pool, well, you need yeah. to find a path forward on this budget situation. You do. And the remedy has to be one that you can implement under the law. Because people yeah. will write things, what haven't, why don't you just adjust the pensions? Number one, you can't do that because there are collective bargaining agreements that were reached and they're contractual obligations. I wasn't there when these contractual obligations were made. Uh, personally, I doubt that I would have voted for some of the contractual obligations yeah. uh, because of my background in finance. I think I would have said, whoa, this is a, this is a house of cards. Yeah, this is a little nutty. But I've also talked to uh, Mayor Reed from San Jose. And Mayor Reed is termed out now after serving two terms, eight years in San Jose. And he probably was the statewide leader on trying to get pension reform. Now, he's a United States Air Force Academy graduate, a graduate of Stanford Law, and a mayor that tried to do everything possible to get changes inside of the pension situation. I asked him directly, a city of Petaluma, 60,000 people, what do you recommend? And he said, you are really along for the ride. Yeah. Because if you tried to uh, lessen your mandatory contribution to CalPERS, they would certainly sue you. Yeah. And if you tried to change your collective bargaining agreements, you'll get sued by the uh, law enforcement agencies. Yeah. They're bargaining units. That's what I'm saying. These are intractable, emotional issues. So we're along yeah. for the ride. So what we have to do is we have to treat every dollar that we have in the general fund as either the last dollar we have or the first dollar that we don't have. And that's the challenge of it, and we've been walking that tightrope. And in the meantime, we're trying to grow our revenues. We'll have the silk mill. You know, that's coming. Yeah. I'm really proud of that. I'm we're talking happy on about Lakeville. That. It's the old Sunset Line and Twine. Yes. And, and what is this? What are, you, what are you proud of? In it this will be 76 hotel rooms. Uh, the original plan called for 93. They cut it down in size a little bit uh, because of the market. They think that 76 will meet the demand for what they want to do. It'll be high end uh, for longer stay, multiple nights, not somebody that comes in and spends eight hours and leaves town. And uh, it, it will be an absolutely fantastic historical renovation of the building. And when that went through the uh, par uh, Planning Commission and the Historical Review, it was uh, right before Thanksgiving of 2009. And uh, Marianne Hurley was on the Architectural Review Committee, uh, Historic Spark, it was called. And um, she gave the architect, uh, Tom Joss, about 105 suggestions on what they needed to do for historical renovation of that building. And when I looked at that and I thought, oh my gosh, these people are going to bolt and run away. Yeah. 
and I forwarded it to Tom, and he sent back, this is great. This is what I was hoping for, real direction on what it is they wanted to see. And he said to me in an email, he said, most of this I'll be happy to do. Some of it I will build on and do more elaborate than what she's requesting. And some of it we won't be able to do, and I'll explain why. That would be the vinyl windows. It did turn out to be vinyl windows, I mean, which, uh, <laughs> you know what, yeah. But that sounds like an analogy, though, to the job you have to do. I mean, you're given this long laundry list of things or the, the council. It's like, we need to fix all these problems. Go. Yeah. It's like, well, some of them will do. Some of them will try, and some of them we just can't. And he, and he embraced it. But I think, you know, you're right, the vinyl windows. Yeah. But if you look at it and you say there's a building that is dilapidating and going yes. to fall apart. Part. Put the windows in. And instead, it'll be a building <laughs> yeah. that will be on the tax rolls, that will generate transient occupancy tax, that will uh, be a complete uplift for town. Uh -huh. Back in 2003, the first thing that we did that was a real turnaround for the community was the renovation of the historic train depot. Yeah. And that was a little over a million dollars of redevelopment mm -hmm. money. And I remember the discussion on the council because some, and I won't say who, didn't want to do it because they were making the point that private capital would never do anything like this. This is an absurd investment. Oh, my heavens. The definition of curing blight and qualifying for redevelopment expenditure under the law is to do what cannot be done any other way. And you need yeah. to make a legal finding of fact that there is no other way to do this. Yeah. And it's absolutely true. Private capital would have never restored the historic uh, rail oh. depot and the art center and, and the amenity we have Why there. was that valuable? Because it said to out-of-town developers that didn't know Petaluma so well, this is a town that is turning itself on the corner. And instead of heading to dilapidation, it's heading to renovation. And it attracted capital here. Well, it's, it's a beautiful building. Uh, it, it's, it's so much of our history wrapped up in that. And quite frankly, for me, uh, a lot of personal history, the art center, uh, it, when it was uh, uh, the icy warehouse, this is where I learned to sweep. And sweeping is what I like doing the most. In life. In life. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I could sweep for the rest of my life, and I'd be a happy guy. Uh, you have listed off so many uh, things, reasons, narratives, etc., that you've come across in your job. How does one not get overwhelmed and not just throw their arms up in the air? Because you know, it, on paper, a lot of this stuff seems unsolvable. It's not, though, because every day is different. I mean, I've been doing this 10 years. Okay, so it sounds like a lot maybe, but put that, that's 3,600 days. Every day is different. So you never know. The, the thing that is interesting to me is that you, you put your name on the ballot and what are the three things you want to do as mayor? And after doing this for a while and, and talking to other mayors, it's the 300 things that you're going to get to do before you ever get a chance to do the three things you thought you were going to do. You know, because so many people have said, Rainier, 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 Rainier. If that's the only thing they're going to do, they're going to be frustrated for 60 years. Yeah. But all of a sudden, here's the opportunity for the silk mill. Maybe here's an opportunity. That the next thing that I hope happens is the Poly Class Center. And there are yeah. people that are working on it. And but this, uh, for people who don't know, is a building not too far from here. It's a performing yeah. arts uh, center, and it needs about, be, a million yes. needs about a million dollars of work. Isn't that correct? Something like that. I think you talked about it last time you were on the program. There's people fact. looking at it, and, yeah. you know, and I'll talk about it everywhere because I'll throw it out there until you know somebody yeah. hears it somewhere. But there are people that are working on it, and I don't know if I'm at liberty to say who okay. so I won't but there's but. a spark of, of excitement in your
your voice as, yeah. I, as I say that. And I, I think a lot of folks out there uh, have, have even refused to continue voting because they feel so deflated in, in terms of how politics are going. Yeah. And I guess I would ask you, like, what would you say to those people? Because you're excited about the future and about what can happen. Yeah, but they can make a dis- difference in their town. They can actually have a say. Yes. Um, you know what, if I can interject here, that's what I've been saying for an awful long time. If you're worried about national politics, uh, then maybe you can back up a little bit on that, but you can make a difference in your own microcosm, in your own hometown. Exactly. These are the places where your votes really do count. David Glass won by 74 uh, votes, for crying out loud. Oh, good heavens. <laughs> had those, had those. well, actually 84 votes this last time. Had those 42 people not voted, we'd be talking... A very different game tonight. Well, you know, I mean, that's it. The, those people made a difference. Every single one of them made a difference. Uh, through them, I hope I make a difference. I hope I don't disappoint them too many times because I do know that you're going to make choices and you're going to do things that maybe you're not happy with yourself, but it's the best choice you can make out of the options. And, you know, some people aren't going to understand that the, the, and they supported you, so there's going to be some erosion. Other people are going to look at it and say, you know what? I don't like what you did. I still like you. I don't, I don't <laughs> like what you did. And, and that's going to happen, yeah, you know, because. That, that's Petaluma. That's small town America any town, still. You any bet. town. Small you town know, America. it's the nature of it. Yep. Well, I mean, that's a wonderful closing thought right there. I, I mean, so. I think it's really important for people not to lose faith and to understand that you can make a difference. Those 42 people made the difference in your election, and you as an individual have made a, a, a tremendous amount of, of yeah. difference and have shaped r- the trajectory that this town has gone on by being a voice of seven on the council. Thank you so much. And that's, yeah. that's, a, that's proof, and, and, and we really appreciate your, Very your, much. your time tonight and, yeah. and the service you've done to the city. We do all shape our communities, and sometimes yes. it's slow, and Sometimes it's frustrating, and sometimes people get mad and angry. But, I mean, you look at Petaluma 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, and it'll show you that change happens whether you want it to or not, and we can all have a hand in it. We can. As this long as we don't give up. It's still glorious. It, was, it feels as glorious to me as, as when I was 5 years old and 10 years old, and it's just still a great town. You know what? And Harper's Bazaar magazine, a couple of years ago, and they printed— Number one place to visit in the world, Petaluma, California. Paris, France made that list also. I sent a letter to the mayor of Paris inviting them to come to Petaluma and congratulated them on joining us on that list. Let let me know if they ever come out. I'd love to meet this person. You know what? From the mayor's office, one person From the current mayor to the future mayor. Love it. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe they will. Maybe they'll come in and buy a bottle of Sonoma County wine at Petaluma Market. Well, (laughs) I would appreciate that as well. Uh, I will not declare my candidacy tonight. We'll talk about that later. But what I will say is that Tom and I both care about this city very much. very much. And we're appreciative of anyone who's working Mm -hmm. towards its best interest. So once again, thank you very Mm -hmm. much for your service, and thank you for joining us here tonight. It was a pleasure.